Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. Hey everyone, it's Todd here. Welcome to the Outdoor Feast. Thanks for joining us this week. Hope everybody's safe and healthy. It's May, and that means in New York it's turkey season, spring turkey season, and that's what we're talking about this week. That's what we've been looking forward to, and I am absolutely thrilled to have New York guide Drew Gerlitz on the podcast this week to talk about reading birds. Okay, so it's complimentary. If you've been following along with the ModCarn webinars uh, that Mark Norquist and Mark Strand and Ray I and Kyle Hildebrandt and Jamie Carlson and others have been working on through the Hunting Camp Live platform, then I think you'll like this whether you're in New York State or not. So the conversation here reflects around reading birds and understanding circumstances and thinking through the differences between woods birds and farm birds and different considerations for tactics and strategies for those two scenarios and then as the season goes on. So I'm going to say through experience that as you get started with turkey hunting, you start learning about the different kinds of calls and you start learning about decoys and you start learning about roosting and scouting and everything. And it would seem like turkey hunting should be pretty straightforward. But I can tell you through experience that turkeys can be anything but straightforward sometimes. They never do one thing all the time. But Drew walks us through the process of how he goes about reading birds and how they're responding to your calling and how you might change up your calling for different circumstances and change up your decoy presentations for different circumstances. So this is kind of a a podcast that's going to have a whole bunch of how-to information based on Drew's experience, and I hope you like it. Uh, Beyond turkey hunting, Drew is a fascinating guy. He teaches sculpture. He travels all over the world. He has a great perspective as a human. And um, I've done some work with him on cleanup projects on public lands over the past year or two. And he's just a dear friend and a great guy, and he's very generous with his information. As you go out into the turkey woods this year... Always put safety first, okay? So always put safety first, just like you would in any other hunting circumstance. We are talking a little bit about a couple of tactics on this podcast episode called fanning and reaping. And it's a scenario where maybe you use a tail fan or maybe you've got kind of a decoy and it's a visual setting. Maybe it's a big field and you've spotted some birds and you're confident that there's no other hunters around and you kind of use that to kind of decoy and mask your movements to get a little bit closer or to agitate those birds to come closer to you. And so when Drew's talking about that in this podcast, he emphasizes the fact that you need to keep safety first. And I just want to make sure that that is paramount as you're listening to this. If you have any doubt in your mind that there could be other hunters around or any doubt that it's a lower visibility setting, please put safety first and keep the fan, you know, in your pack and save it for another day. Stay safe. If you were outside, just do it responsibly. Do what you can. Hang in there. Keep us posted and let us know what you think. Thanks for joining us. Drew, how you doing today? I'm great. Thanks, Todd, for having me today. Well, it's always a pleasure catching up um, and I'm excited. Turkey season's around the corner. So let's just jump right in. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background 
and how you got turkey hunting and like what you're up to? Yeah, yeah. So um, for sure, uh, as you as you said, um, I'm actually uh, a professor. I teach uh, sculpture. So I travel all over the world making sculpture, and it just so happens that, uh, you know, turkey season is kind of the prime time for uh, my university teaching to be slowing down. And at the same time, I can be uh, guiding for Eastern View Outfitters. So I've been guiding with them for about five years now. Been hunting turkeys for quite a long time, but... um, once you have to start teaching other people how to do things, I think you really learn how to do them yourself even better. And then, you know, I think even even more so, um, you know, just learning some little uh, traits and uh, tips from clients. You know, uh, most of our clients are U.S. Super Slam clients, so they're trying to get their 49 birds in 49 states. And um, so when you've been guiding uh, clients that have 30-something states ticked off, they have quite a bit of experience and they can teach you a lot. So, you know, me as an educator, always learning is uh, always growing, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that's an interesting point about your typical client that's coming in is, has seen a lot in terms of turkey hunting across the country. And so they're experienced, uh, they've, they've been in the field a lot. So you get that opportunity to learn from them as much as you're helping them in Northern New York. So how would you lay out the scene if you had to give kind of a broad view? How would you break that down for people and for the listeners in terms of woods birds versus ag birds and like how we get started with helping people begin their turkey hunting journey here? Well, yeah, I mean, I think uh, ag birds uh, definitely are a lot more visible to public, right? So uh, those birds tend to be pressured a lot harder, but they're also more of a visual bird. So they take a lot more visual cues than the woods birds. And um, the woods birds, truthfully, I typically start out with woods birds because uh, I'm avoiding hunting pressure. And so I'm letting all the um, you know, kind of general hunters that are in the area uh, hunt a lot of the ag fields and the ag birds. And um, I start off in the woods and, you know, do pretty well. And then um, and then once those birds get super pressured and they're still hanging out in those ag fields, that's when I go after them and, and get those birds that are super pressured. So I think a good thing to talk about today also is... Uh, you know, pressured birds versus non-pressured birds. That sounds fantastic. Um, I'm looking forward to your perspective on it. And so let's talk a little bit about scouting, for instance, both for the big woods and for the the farm birds and the pressured birds. As you're approaching turkey hunting season, Drew, like what's your routine like and and how do you break things down? Well, you know, we've had a pretty early spring and um, the, the snow is definitely uh, gone away pretty quick, um, which typically tends to get those birds out in the fields and strutting a bit more. And, you know, in, in March, um, the birds will still be kind of flocked up and you'll see, you know, 30 hens together and a bunch of, of, uh, toms together. You know, those groups of jakes running around chasing those hens early. Um, and then as the season kind of rolls on, um, 
you know, thing, things definitely change. Those, those hens uh, will start looking for uh, nesting sites. And um, so those hens will break up and they kind of hang out near their nesting areas. And that's when the toms almost turn into, you know, bucks in a rut cruising around looking for those, uh, for those hens that are nesting. And so I really feel like, you know, as the season rolls on into, you know, the second week of May, you start really seeing Tom's places that you don't normally. So scouting is not always where you see them in February and March, but it's, you know, where they are at that time. They start moving at more and more as the season progresses. In your experience, then, like um, when they start shifting like that and toms start moving, what do you look for? Is there anything in particular from a habitat standpoint or anything particular from a scouting standpoint that you kind of look for in terms of trying to find tom activity? Honestly, no. I put a lot of miles on, you know, driving around with my binoculars and scouting. And um, oftentimes, uh, before fly down in the morning, um, I'll go owl hoot in, in the woods in some places that I know that they've been um, just kind of keeping track. And then in the evening also, um, after the, I know that they've flown up uh, going in and owl hooting as well. So so doing a little bit of uh, audio scouting, I suppose, in the in the thicker, thicker timber and the and the bottoms where you can't necessarily glass the birds. One good thing with uh, scouting is if you see a hen in the same place every day, standing, looking around, you know, doing a little bit of feeding, but mainly hanging out in the same place. She's not standing there hanging around because she has clutch eggs. It's because she hasn't been bred yet. So if there's an island of trees in the middle of a big ag field and you see a lone hen, check on that bird every day. And I guarantee that one day there's going to be a tom standing next to her. That so. is a good tip right there. So we're going to talk a lot more about reading birds and reading like reading what they're doing kind of like individually, but also kind of like through, through turkey hunting season. And so that's something I didn't know. I mean, it would be so intuitive to think that she's just around a clutch. Um, but um, that's a great tip, Drew. I really appreciate that. Uh, what else, anything else on scouting that you think people ought to know here as they're listening? Well, I think, you know, as we get into uh, the, uh, how to harvest a turkey, you know, we'll, talk a little bit more about um the fly up and what that means and watching them as you know the night before you're going to actually hunt and so scouting in in my eyes will kind of roll back around after we um discuss i suppose a little bit more about tactics and and how to actually do that okay that sounds great so but and just to summarize you know you're your owl calling in the morning really early and in the evenings like where you in your experience you've you think turkeys might be roosting and so you're using audio cues and uh, for the scouting you're not getting too much into like what you see on the ground just based on experience of where you think those birds are and what they're doing um you, you had talked a little bit earlier about 
the difference between woods birds, big woods birds, and ag birds in terms of like visual cues. And like when we think about visual cues, I think about decoys. Um, so what's your advice, Drew, about how to get started with decoys and just like what somebody, a listener might need and how they might think through how to use those? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it definitely depends on your budget and and the kind of birds that you're hunting, too. Starting out, unfortunately, when I was a kid, there wasn't too many uh, turkeys around. The first one I ever harvested was actually with a uh, with a hay bine, and I was probably 13. And that was the first time I knew there was turkeys on our farm, but that was in the early 90s, I suppose. So as far as decoys, if you're hunting the woods, um, there's a lot of people that say, oh, you don't need a decoy, you don't need a decoy. And that is that is definitely true. You can you can kill birds in the woods without a decoy, um, but I definitely do like a hen in the woods because what that does is it allows either a hen or a tom to cue up on that on that decoy and not be looking at you sitting against a tree. Mm -hmm. So, and in my experience, you know, I started with uh, the styrofoam walmart version decoys and quickly learn that um even jakes will run in get to 40 yards and stop and turn around so the the decoys that i use are i use avian x they're not the most expensive they're not the cheapest um but you know they're in about the 60 dollar range if you were going to do anything, the first thing I would do, if you'd say, okay, well, I'm only going to spend $60 my first year, is buy a hen. And you just buy one hen. I don't think it really matters whether it's a feeding hen or a lookout. Um, I would probably buy a lookout. And if you were hunting solely woods birds, I would say that's probably all you need besides a turkey fan once you kill a turkey. But if you're hunting ag fields or open timber, a lot of times in um, in big woods, I still run a full strut tom in the woods. And I'll talk more about why, but that would be my second purchase is a full strut. You know, again, you can get by with, um, you know, a Primos uh, B-Mobile. Um, the Avian X are great until... Um, you or your client shoot them because they uh, they blow up with using air. You can always patch them. And then um, kind of the Supreme or the Dave Smith decoys, the DSDs. Um, but those are a lot of money. So that's all good advice. And uh, that's really helpful. So start out with a hen decoy. Get that set up because that can work um, for both hens or for toms. And then, and then go to a, like a Tom setup too for a decoy. And, and let's talk about setup then, because that's something that I think I struggle with personally. I've only been hunting for four or five years for turkey hunting, maybe six or seven, but I, it's been school of hard knocks. And, you know, it's one thing to have a couple of good decoys and, and we're going to get into calling too, because I think that this is the same thing. And then it's another thing to actually know how to set it up right. Um, so in your experience, what's your advice, Drew, for like setting up and like what to look for in a setup and what to avoid in a setup? Well, that definitely depends on reading the bird. 
And so that's where coming back to scouting comes into play. You know, if I've seen a bird that I've actually seen, uh, you know, maybe two or three year old Tom that um, is a singular bird and is being beat up by five or six jakes and the jakes are running off of Tom. I've seen that before. So in that case, you definitely don't want to put out a full strut Tom because if he's getting beat up by jakes, you know, he knows he doesn't have a chance. So um, I probably would still run a quarter strut uh, Jake with that bird and a hen if it's in an agricultural field. If I'm in the woods and I know right where he is, and if he's by himself um, and doesn't have any hens with him, definitely would only run a hen in the woods. If he's if he's in the woods um, and has hens, I would run a full strut plus a hen and hoping that that bird is going to get mad at that that other tom that's just moved into his place so it's really trying to read how aggressive that bird is you know there's plenty of other toms that may have five or six hens with them and be the only tom in the field and then i'm definitely going to run i actually run multiple hens and and a full strut decoy in that kind of situation so it's really trying to just read the temperature of that tom yeah so that that's great advice and so like what that comes down to and and we'll go back to that and we're going to be talking a lot about reading the birds later in the conversation because i think that that really dictates a, a lot of things it it dictates like what you're talking about the setup and how to approach that bird and then also like we're going to talk a little bit about calling as well which I think mm-hmm. is my my biggest struggle is calling because I, I know like when you watch turkey hunting on uh, setups on YouTube and like, I you know, it's easy to talk about box calls and pot calls and slate calls and mouth calls and everything. But it's another thing to like know how to put things together and talk the talk that that you're reading the bird correctly. You know what I mean? How did you go about yeah. learning all that? And like, what's your advice on all that? Well, honestly, um, you know, I I don't think I'm the best caller out there, that's for sure. And um and I don't think that anybody really has to be a good caller at all. You just really need to know how to read the bird. And so just because uh Tom is gobbling back to you, that doesn't that doesn't mean anything. I mean, you know as well as everybody else that they'll they'll gobble back to you if you beep your horn at them so calling is is important but that's not that's not what gets you a bird what gets you a bird in my opinion is not necessarily being aggressive with your calling although there's times for that but being aggressive in getting in close and getting on a bird and figuring out the temperature of either that tom or figuring out the temperature of the hens. Oh, so, so that's great advice. So in your opinion, what does it mean? Like when you say to be aggressive and to get close and to read the temperatures, just keep talking about that stuff. Like just expand on that a little bit. I think that that's like extremely helpful to the listeners. Yeah. So um, 
so for an instance, if this is where for me scouting comes back, if I if I have some dinner, go out after dinner, you know, seven o'clock at night, and I find a bird in a field and he's strutting. He has three hens with him. Say there's some jakes and I'll sit there and I'll watch and glass and watch to see exactly what tree that bird flies up into. And then when I say aggressive, I'm not saying set up 200 yards from him in the direction you think he may go. That could be a smart choice. But I'm meaning get underneath, get 70 yards away, 50 yards away from him. And to do that, Typically, what I do is after fly up, I watch them fly up with binoculars, and then I look at the skyline. I drive to where I'm going to be walking in from. I look at the skyline and try and pick out trees that they're in. That tree that they're in, I can guarantee you whatever tree is there. I know, Todd, you know trees pretty well, <laughs> and <laughs> certain, tre cer certain trees have horizontal limbs and certain trees have more vertical limbs. And, you know, those birds are always going to be in a tree that has horizontal limbs. That's what they want to be in. So where you are in your country and um, whether you're hunting a deciduous forest or uh, conifers, um, you know, for me, I'm always looking for the Typically, the tallest conifer that I can see is what they're going to be flying up into. And I can make that judgment a lot of times before they even fly up. And then and then it's placing yourself 50 yards from there. And I walk in in the dark, set up in the dark, never turn on a headlamp. I make sure that I'm in there well before I hear any bird chirping. So if you hear a bird chirping, you got out there too late. You know, the first thing that makes a noise in the woods, besides woodcock that go all night long, but are typically like ground sparrows. So if you're hearing ground sparrows, those birds are awake on the limb and they're going to see you. So that that aggressiveness means getting 50 yards from that tree I set up, whether that means sitting in a blind or not in a blind, and then setting up uh, decoys. and hanging there. And because I watched those birds fly up the night before, I'm not going to call to him. I don't need to hear him gobble. Um, he'll do that on his own and they'll fly down on their own. I don't want to, I don't want to give them any option to think about where I am or how good or how bad my calling is. That is great advice. Um, so, I mean, you're, you're getting right in there early, really early. Um, in the dark, yeah. no headlamps or anything, and you're just right on top of them, and you're just gonna yep. let them let them dick. You know they're they'll come down, but you're not gonna call. You're just gonna let them do their thing and let nature take its course. And so, how do you approach like when you're in the big woods setting, Drew, where maybe you didn't watch that, you didn't exactly know where they were gonna um, roost for the night because you didn't see yep. them roost there. How, what's yep. your morning routine like in the big woods versus what you're talking about where you where you've pinpointed a bird the night before? Yeah, so then I can sleep an extra 45 minutes and um that's always nice. But uh walking in, you know, just as I want to be in to say 300 yards away from where I think he may be 
you know, when the birds start talking in the morning. And I'm not meaning the turkeys, I'm meaning, you know, uh, songbirds. And because they will actually talk typically well before the turkeys do. So that's just a natural um, rhythm that you can kind of get into and knowing timing. Um, and I'll, I will always owl hoot first. If I don't get an owl hoot response, um, I, for some reason, the crow call. I think it's the higher pitch of a crow call. And I'll crow call, and a lot of times I'll get an answer to a crow call. And then I'll move in, you know, just pinpoint that location. And then, again, look for trees. Because you can almost always... Um, even in the dark, your eyes adjust, you can see the big trees, you know, roughly in your kind of woods, your neck of the woods, as they say, what kind of trees are around and what kind of trees would have good horizontal limbs that they could be roosted in. So typically in that case, I'm not going to move into 50 yards, especially in the woods where it's loud. I'm going to move into maybe a hundred yards away. Yep. Okay. That's great. And then, so in that case, you're, you've moved in, you've kind of pinpointed a tree that you think might be a good roost tree and, yep. uh, and, the, and you've crow called, you know, you've, you've owl hooted. Um, and then do you start a calling sequence or do you just hang tight for a little while and see what happens? Nope. So, um, I actually will always hang tight because, um, as those birds wake up, you should be able to hear the hens first and those hens are going to start really, really quietly talking on the limb. So that gives you a really good estimation of where they're going to be. Um, there's a lot of times that you'll see that you may have, you know, three or 30 hens. Um, and a lot of times those hens are in the same kind of general area. And then you know, 60 to 100 yards away will be the toms. They, not always, but they definitely tend to roost just a little bit away, um, but they're going to fly down to a clearing. So if you can figure out what that clearing is, you know, they're big birds. They need some space to land, and they like to be able to land comfortably in a bit of an opening. So if you if you have that figured out, but, but again, if those uh, songbirds are making noise, um, I probably wouldn't even move in. I would, I would know that I'm, I'm a little bit too late and I'm going to hang back and listen for those birds and then determine where they are when they start talking on their own uh, to be able to move in. Yep. And I never call until they're on the ground. I just, I don't want to give away where I am because as you know, we sit in deer stands from up above and look down at things walking around and that's what they're doing. So I want the, I want to be on the same playing field as them. That's really good advice. I am instinctually like my nature is, um, as a deer hunter is on the move, right? I'm always like ranging around. Yep. I don't want to say running and gunning, but like in terms of being aggressive, you, you know, there's different meanings to the word aggressive. And I'll just like, I get in the woods and I think I'm supposed to start calling, you know? And so, yep. and I think a lot of people that don't have a great, a lot of experience with turkey hunting 
might just feel the same way. It's like you got that nice box call in your pocket and you're you're itching to use it and you're excited. You just want to hear it gobble, you know, and there's that temptation to to just go crazy with it. Yeah, so, I was just going to say, and that's a good point about a box call too. I mean, so we've been talking a little about, a bit about, you know, walking in in the dark, but let's say it's, uh, you know, your first setup didn't work and you're on to, you know, walking a woodlot someplace. And that's when, if it's seven o'clock in the morning, all the birds are making noise, they're doing their thing. I am running and gunning and hitting that box call. And, you know, I'll start out with a diaphragm quiet. And then if I don't get a response and I'll hit the box call and then I'll move depending on the thickness of the, of the woods or the terrain, I'll move a hundred yards or 300 yards. And, you know, not necessarily thinking about vantage points, but thinking about, you know, where to, where to call down into a, a valley or call to a side of a hill that they may be on. Um, and trying to get a response that way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so like when you say you're starting out with your diaphragm call and then maybe moving to a box call, are you just like soft yelping at that point? Just like, or what, what's your, yeah. what's, what's it mean to you? Like when you start calling like that? Yeah. I mean, um, a lot of times really soft because, um, I have called and I've had birds, you know, under a hundred yards away. Um, so if you just blast right off the bat, um, you know, maybe that Tom is going to shock gobble, but you may end up scaring uh, the hens and then hens are going to pull that, that, uh, Tom away, even though he shock gobbled to you. So, you know, always starting with, uh, volume plays a lot into it. Um, and so yeah, definitely some soft, a little bit of cutting and then soft yelps and then, um, then the box call, um, if I think that there's nothing else, you know, nothing within 100 yards of me, then I'll hammer on the box call a little bit. You know, a pot call, um, an aluminum pot call, those things can really scream too, and they're real high pitch. And I've had times where a diaphragm doesn't do it, a box call doesn't do it, and then you hit a, a an aluminum pot call, and then they light up and they're only, you know, 150 yards away. Okay. So, so that's interesting. So it's just like, it's just what got their response, right? What you think it's the pitch or just something? Yeah, I think it is the pitch. Um, and you know, there's times that I can go in the woods and use a, an aluminum pot call and I don't get anything. And then real soft, uh, light calling with a diaphragm call. And then that's what brings them in. So Again, it's just reading reading what the birds are like. And um, I think they definitely go through phases of, um, you know, aggression. And then depending on the weather and if it's cool and windy, you know, they're not going to be as doing as much calling. And when those birds are working through the woods and feeding, they're going to be a lot quieter. And, um, you know, if the weather is not great, the toms are not going to be blasting it like they are in a high pressure situation. Yep. So it's like taking the day into consideration and the conditions and that makes a lot of sense, Drew. And so like with, 
Let's keep talking about taking the temperature of birds, like, because that kind of calls into like the whole calling sequence and how you're setting up and everything's interrelated. So like yep. you talked about um, hens pulling toms away. And I think that that's like, that happens to me all of the time. Like I, I can't tell you yep. how many times like I'm hunting. And if there's a, a tom that's got hens with him, I, I, my success level seems personally to drop considerably. Like I haven't figured out the, the right levers to pull, um, to get those hens worked up and maybe moving in. So you want to talk a little bit about how you, how you approach yeah. those situations. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, if it's, if it's a field hunt and, um, there's hens out there, a lot of times, you know, if you're in a field, you're kind of stuck. You're not going to be able to get up and move around. Um, so you're going to have to let them hopefully slowly work into you. Um, if you can get a hen to respond to you, then you should respond back to her with the same amount of aggression as she gives you. And maybe turn it up, turn up the volume and the intensity um and also the quickness of your cut um uh a little bit each time and just talk back and forth if she doesn't reply then tone it down a little bit and then you may end up having to wait a half an hour and then start that whole sequence again and really try and get her worked up you can i i've had i've had probably you know, I actually think it's easier with a big group of hens, but I've had probably like 15 hens get so pissed off at me <laughs> that they all come running in and looking around and screaming louder than the tom is gobbling. And you just end up being surrounded by hens um, because you've you've pissed them off. And then that tom what is he going to do? He's going to follow up the pack and roll right in behind him. So, you know, a lot of times, um, I'll, if, if I can get a hen worked up, um, especially with a diaphragm call, um, I, I like to use, um, speaking of diaphragm calls, uh, you know, how many do I have in my vest? I probably have 20 different calls in my vest. Um, and, the ones I use all the time are Woodhaven. They're not the cheapest, um, but they're what work for me. Um, and so I'll try and ramp ramp up what that hen is doing. So, you know, a little cut, 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 yelp, 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 and get that going. And just they'll answer back to that. And then you turn it up one more volume and one more bit of intensity and a lot of times then once they start moving in, especially if you're in the woods, they'll be focused on that hen decoy that you have out. And I've had hens walk up and try and attack my hen, my hen decoy. Really? Yep. And, and yeah. Yeah. It, and so you're like getting aggressive and like ramping up the intensity is through, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's through like a combination of cutting and yelping, but kind of like mimicking what they're doing at their intensity level in terms of like um, the volume and the the timing is that correct? Like you, but you're yeah, ramping it up yeah. a little bit, trying to get them worked yep. up, like like you're a dominant hen. 
Yeah, for, yes, definitely for sure. I'm trying to be the dominant hen, and I know that one of those hens out there hopefully is a dominant hen. And, you know, a lot of people are, are going to say, well, if, you know, you can you can spook away the, the hens and the tom. Well, as you just said, those hens are feeding away anyway and dragging that tom with it. So what do you have to lose? Yep. So, so typically I try and give them, I try and give them the lyrics the first time. And then I see if they'll uh, respond to those lyrics. Right. And then mm -hmm. if they respond to those lyrics, then I turn, turn it up all the time. And I just try and get that intensity going. Um, and I actually think that I kill probably just as many uh, toms by calling in the hens as I do uh, vice versa. Okay, so. that that's really, that's great advice. Another situation I have that I seem to struggle with all the time is where I get toms coming in just out of sight, really close. I mean, I know they're maybe even it's 50 yards, but maybe it's my setup is poor. I didn't think it through. But they just, they, they get to a certain point and then they're like, you come to me. You know what I mean? And like, yeah. I'm the Tom. And I want, I know you're a hen and I want you to come to me. And this is as far as I'm coming in. Do you ever like, you ever deal with that? And like, how do you, how do you work through that situation? I struggle with it yeah. personally. So uh, being aggressive, right. Um, I'll give you a, a, for instance, I had a, um, a uh, super slam uh, guy last year. Um, we were hunting a, a really large ag field that's uh, alfalfa, and the alfalfa was probably about two feet tall. So they don't like to walk around in that stuff because there could be a coyote hanging in there. And I didn't know it from glass in the field, but there was a little low spot where uh, the alfalfa died out from it being swampy. And so when I set up, I set up probably 70 yards away from that spot, not, not knowing it was there. Well, those birds flew out of that tree. There was one tom, four jakes, and like five hens. And all that tom did was strut around in that dead alfalfa spot that may have been like 20 yards wide in a circle. And those birds just kept working that area and they did not want to leave that spot because they didn't feel comfortable leaving that spot. So I literally had a blind set up and I had a turkey fan in the blind with me and the client and I got out of the blind, crawled through the alfalfa behind that turkey fan into our decoys. And then I was able to get the client up and we were 30 yards away from that bird. And all that was is crawling behind that fan. And they weren't afraid of us because he just thought it was that other Tom strutting around that had been standing there that whole time. Wow. It's, it's amazing how much you can get away with um, as long as they think you're a turkey. Um, so, you know, you running around in the woods making noise, that that doesn't matter. I mean, a lot of, if you try and sneak up on a turkey, it's, it's not gonna, it's not gonna work because you're acting like prey. If you act like a turkey, you sound like a turkey crunching around through the woods. They're just going to think it's another turkey. So even walking through the woods, um, trying to move in closer 
you should be you should be making some turkey sounds um because they don't know whether it's a turkey or a coyote so um so there's a lot of times if they hang up in the woods and i can't see them and there's a little bit of a hill um say they're on the opposite crest of the hill and i can't see over um i'll just make some turkey sounds and scratch in the leaves and try and move up until i can see and a lot of times they're fine with that because they hear a turkey they think turkey they don't they're not thinking hunter yeah right that makes a lot of sense you know so they 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 have a different comfort level um so you're you're talking about fans and so like do you use like for your fan setup what do you use for that do you use like a natural turkey fan from a turkey you've harvested or yeah i have i have dozens of them and Mm -hmm. i just um i so after i harvest a turkey um you can actually just use that same fan the next day um cut that cut that fan off and then um take off any there's a little bit of muscle around the base of the fan which makes it open you can cut that stuff off and then um if you don't have much for time um little bondo that you use on a car you can put that at the base of it and it'll hold it right open for you um and otherwise uh gorilla glue and a lot of water and it'll foam up and do the same thing and hold it open for you and i literally carry around a turkey fan all the time everywhere i go and um you know there's a lot of people um who may not be you know they're more traditional hunters and uh the other so fanning is uh the southern the southern version for reaping um Mm -hmm. that's just you don't even have to reap a turkey i'm sure you've seen that on on youtube and such but um what that's doing is it's just getting you into position that maybe then you can settle down and and actually you know do some more calling they've keyed in on seeing some kind of fan um you can almost walk across a field with a fan at a turkey and they're going to think that it's another turkey um definitely in the woods as you're walking um woods roads you know you have to always think about safety safety is a major issue so you have to know where you're hunting but if you know that things are safe and you think that there's some turkeys in a field you know before you poke your head around that tree or that hill just hold that fan up in the air it gives them something to look at other than your face and so for listeners who aren't familiar with the term reaping uh you had made that connection explain reaping to somebody who might be just getting started yeah so i guess a um reaping is uh taking taking a fan they actually make um decoys which i have a avian x that has a little clip on the back and you can um it's just the front side of a tom and you clip your fan into it it'll come with an artificial fan which um don't work anywhere near as good as a real fan um you know even if you have a jake fan and you know that it's a jake fan because it's got three or four feathers sticking up in the middle um you can still use that it's fine um but you can i've crawled i've probably crawled 600 yards across the field with a fan and then 
have three turkeys strutting on the edge of the field. And instead of me coming from the woods, it makes perfect sense to come from some kind of topography in the field. So if there's a little bit of a rise in a field and you can pop over that rise and you know you're safe because you're a hundred, hundred, couple hundred yards from any wood line and you can see that field to make sure there's no other hunters out there. Um, you pop up over that ridge and those toms see that other tom out in the field. They've already claimed that field all morning as theirs. So they're going to literally run at you full speed and you're going to have to shoot them as they're running to you. Typically, um, I can kind of look through the fan, um, around the fan a little bit and be able to see them, but it happens fast. You know, they'll be 200 yards away from you. They see that decoy and then 30 seconds, they're on top of you. They're feet away from you that that is that's exciting uh you know this is yep. great for me because uh i hunt a property i so i live in in the southern adirondacks and one of my my wife's cousins owns a property that's about 400 acres and as you know like down down where i live like chestertown warrensburg there aren't really a lot of fields but this particular property nope. does have a field that's i don't know it's probably 50 acres it's huge for an, a field around here and i've shot several birds in this field and i've just had to mm -hmm. wait them out like using the topography and belly crawling and like i just like watch yep. their movements through the day through the morning yep. and then i've just like okay i'm gonna like lay over here on my belly and use the topography and wait till they seem to be moving around this field and it's like painstaking. Yeah. You have to be really patient with that. You know, it's like you're watching these things and they're out there strutting and they're doing their things, but they're not responding to calling. And so, like, I yep. think this fanning situation could be just wonderful in that case, as long yeah. as you're and, safe and you know that there's no other hunters there. And, and you know, you're an elk hunter, too. And um, you know how elk behave. They don't care if there's a bull screaming a mile away a lot of times. What they're what they care about is somebody getting into their territory. So mm -hmm. all that fanning or or reaping is 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 moving into their territory. So there's a lot of times that you know up up here we have some huge agricultural fields. I mean, I, I bet you I've gone a half mile across some of them, and I will always come in from some long distance across the field and not through the woods. And a lot of times I try and come in from where they were. So let's say it's 9.30 in the morning and they're getting ready to go into woods because the sun is coming up and it's getting a little warm out there. I like, I book it across the field with that fan in front of me. And not that I'm running, but I'm walking fast, just ducked down behind that decoy. And you can you don't even need a special uh reaping decoy you can use a full strut decoy um and you just move all the way across and you try and get to where they were and that they really don't like that if you were in the same place that they were they're coming after you they're they're, they're going to come up. back yeah and when you say moving oh, across yeah. the field are you crawling or are you like how how's that working so uh i've done this in in plowed agricultural fields where, um, you know, there is no tall hay or anything growing to hide your legs. In that case, I kind of, 
I kind of just squat down as low as I can get. And if I'm 300 yards away, I'll be squatted in walking. And as I get to maybe 150 yards, then I'm literally like sitting on my heels and kind of duck walking across the field um, and trying to keep my whole body below that. And you'll see that Tom will be sitting there kind of kind of looking at you, not really paying attention. And then you get to this magic yardage where it just pisses them off. And then they just run right at you. And, you know, sometimes that's, I've had it be 400 yards away and have them run 400 yards across the field. And then I've also had Toms where they're not too excited. They've probably been beat up. And they really don't want to get in a fight. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get to 75 yards away from them and then they just come at you. So, you know, and sometimes they run right at you. If there's two or three toms together, a lot of times they're going to be running shoulder to shoulder at you. Um, If there's one, you know, sometimes he'll slowly strut in because he's a little nervous, but he'll still be strutting in. And as long as you just keep slowly moving toward him, um, a lot of times I turn, the turn the decoy back and forth, you know, quarter turn nice and slow. If you watch the way that they fan, they, they don't do anything fast. They move real kind of slow and steady and they're always displaying that fan. So that's, that's what I do. I just mimic them. Um, yeah. so, you know, and there's a lot of times, uh, I, I've come up uh, on a, on a Tom in a field that, you know, I can tell he's not that hot when I glass him. I always have my binoculars on. My my binoculars are are like, you know, you have to think. These birds have binoculars for eyes, right? And so we need to do the same thing. And I'm always, always glassing because there's a lot of times I'll glass a field. It may have 18-inch um, something growing in it. And I'll pick out a redhead sitting out there in the field. And a lot of time that red redhead may have heads with him. But if it's a dull redhead and he's just hanging out there, he's probably just out there by himself. And as you move out there with that, with that fan, you can watch his head change from, you know, red to blue to nice solid white with that blue, radiant blue color. And you know when that happens, they're getting pissed off and they're going to come. Yep. So it's reading, it's like the temperature and the body language. That's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. What other What other body language do you look for, if anything? Um, well, I, I think there's, you know, a lot of things. Um, you know, so uh, a lot of times hens will see you. I guarantee those, those hens that you were talking about and pulling that, that tom away. They saw you. They didn't necessarily see you, but maybe they saw your decoy. But they're not that interested because you haven't gotten them worked up. And, mm-hmm. you know, you calling to them, they're, they're hearing. I mean, most, most of your listeners probably deer hunt a lot and get to sit in the woods and watch a group of birds work under them. And you can hear they're talking nonstop. So you talking nonstop is doesn't really mean much to them so if you can change that intensity of of that bird 
you know, and a lot of times they'll be feeding. That's a good thing. Hopefully that tom is strutting. Hopefully his head has got some nice color to it. Um, you know when that head is up. So if there's a hen that has her head up and she's putting, you better start calling. And a lot of times I'll do like, I'll do a putt and then a yelp yelp. You should never putt yourself. Because yep. if you putt, that, that's like snorting at a deer. You're going to okay. snort at a deer and it's going to run away. Um, but if you, you'll hear sometimes a hen will mix a little bit of a putt. I mean, it's kind of a half putt, half cut. And so uh, I just, if there's one hen that's got me and, um, and she putts, I immediately putt and then give some yelps and I try and cover up her putts. And then I try and make her be comfortable again. So it's just, um, you know, it's it, it's reading those birds. You know, when there when there's a tom moving in and reading body language, obviously, um, the the spitting and drumming is great. I I love I love sitting against a tree, not hearing anything, and then just all of a sudden hear the boom. And you know that that bird is 20 yards behind you strutting someplace. Um, and that's a great thing. And um, if you blow your setup because you're moving or wiggling around and that that Tom puts his wings down or his shoulders go down, it's all over. He's going to be moving away. He may not run away super fast. You may still have an opportunity to sit up and try and move to take a shot. But as soon as you see those, those I say shoulders, but their wings go down, you're done. You better swing and shoot. And when you say wings go down, I mean, are you looking at the tips of the wings or just like the shoulders no. or how, what do you mean? Yeah, I guess more or less the, the top, um, uh, I guess apex of their wing that would be the highest part. So almost yep. like what we would consider to be shoulders. So yep. Um, okay. Just those those wings go down and kind of loose. Obviously, um, you know, if a bird, a lot of times a, a tom, even if he's not strutting, he'll still be like quarter strut. You'll see his his feathers all relax and he'll get fairly small looking. Yep. And, and so what's your advice, Drew, for shells and gun patterning? Talk a little bit about that, and then we can get back to anything you want to do in terms of more body language, more temperature. Another question yeah. I have, too, is, um, is if, you, if you change your strategy as, as turkey season goes on. So like in New York here, we have a, a month-long season, and in the woods in late May, are a lot different than the woods on the 1st of May in terms of foliage and temperature and everything like that and what the turkeys may be doing. Um, so you want to talk about loads and shells and then offer yeah. any advice on how you might um, how you might shift, if anything, your strategies for big woods and ag birds through the season? Yeah, so I definitely, um, I've shot a lot of lead number fives in my my years and I've even shot two and three quarter inch lead number fives and killed a lot of birds. You don't need to shoot three and a halfs. The one thing I will say about three and a halfs is often I find that they don't pattern at all. And a lot of times they don't pattern with a with a turkey choke. 
but a three and a half sometimes will actually pattern better with like even a modified choke. Um, and I think what that is, is it's just too many pellets to fit through that tiny, tiny choke. So it makes a lot of erratic um, pellets. Um, so if I was buying turkey shells and I was trying to be the best that I can and I didn't have a lot of money to spread around as far as buying a bunch of different loads to figure out which ones work great, I would go with lead number fives and a three inch. If you're shooting a turkey choke, obviously pattern it. If you want to spend a little bit more, um, the TSS, the, the um, tungsten shot. Legally in New York, I, you can't shoot anything uh, smaller than a number eight. And, you know, we shoot like nine, well, eights and nines um, at skeet load. So you would never think that eights or nines would kill a bird. But um, in TSS, those things fly you can shoot 65 yards easily a lot of times with a with 20 gauge um, with TSS. They're pretty amazing. Um, I actually have switched over to TSS. I shoot number sevens now. And something that's really good is um, thinking about your pattern and knowing what that is. I mean, everybody can shoot a hole in a piece of paper at 10 yards, but to remember how big your pattern is really close and then remember what your pattern goes to out to 40, 45 yards. On my bino harness, I have a, a range finder and I range birds all the time. If I have time and I'm concealed, I range a bird and I know what it's at. You know, there's a lot of times I always set up my decoys, whatever, like 15 yards away. That's an easy chip shot. But I was, I was hunting with a, um, good fellow BHA member. We were both in the middle of a field and crawling behind two strutters. We came up over this hill and this Tom, I actually videotaped the whole thing sitting behind my strutter. I was probably eh, 10 yards behind um, the shooter and he was up in front and this bird ran into about eight feet before he decided to sit up and try and take a shot. And I was videotaping the whole thing. When you slow down that videotape, you can see that he missed that bird by about an inch and a half. And his pellet pattern was only about an inch and a half. And it was right at that perfect level. He shot right above where the feathers meet the red skin on the neck. And it was an inch and a half back. But again, those pellets were only about an inch, inch and a half wide. And then his second follow-up shot, 20 yards, and the thing was dead. What's your thoughts on adaptation and making adjustments through turkey season? Anything that you think of in terms of top two, three pieces of advice for people? Do you change things up or do you just uh, – how, how do you go about hunting in late May as opposed to, say, the first week? Well, I think um, for sure uh, late May – you need to be a lot more aggressive because um, just like those deer get um, super spooky um, late in the season, the turkeys are the same way. Um, you know, hunting places uh, that have a, a lot of uh, pressure, um, there's plenty of times where you can't even put out a decoy because they just see a static um, 
decoys sitting there and they know they know the game and they're not going to work um so you know as as the season goes on i think you have to get more aggressive and more aggressive and so for me to get a bird every day with a client um means being super aggressive trying to get lucky with getting a bird right off the limb at you know 5:30 in the morning and if yep. that doesn't happen then just finding the next bird and the next bird and the next bird and i don't spend a whole lot of time i don't i don't sit there calling for a half an hour i'll sit down for 10 minutes and call if i don't hear anything i'm moving and trying to find the next one and like really going to them yep so i think you know the first week of the season um they don't really know the game yet you can be a bit more novice and a bit more timid but um you know if you don't kill that bird there's always another one so yep. just yep. keep going and be aggressive that that tends to be i have a friend who taught me the ropes of turkey hunting and and that's how he hunts in the in the woods is he is i, I consider him to be really aggressive and he doesn't mm -hmm. monkey around, you know, like he, he's yep. the same way that you're talking about. He's like, okay, I'm going to call, but if I don't hear what I want to hear, or I'm not on that bird, I'm just going to keep going and I'm going to be aggressive and find the bird that's going to, that's going to work, you know? Um, yep. and, and so I've seen him do that so many times. Um, and, and he's very successful at turkey hunting in a place here that's otherwise kind of hard to hunt turkeys. So yeah. it's great. Before we like wrap up this conversation, what other things do you think might be important to our listeners? Um, anything else you want to talk about? Did I miss anything in terms of like taking the temperature of birds, reading birds, um, anything that we talked about pulling things together, Drew? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think um, as far as kind of our thesis here is, um, is, I think that a lot of a lot of hunters are just um, really worried about getting caught, and um, you definitely um, can get caught. They can see you. You, I always say, like, don't worry so much about like your setup and where you're setting up. Try and set up sitting in the shade. Try and set up so that you have a backdrop behind you, but. I've leaned on a sapling that's an inch and a half wide. And as long as you don't move, you could be plain as day and they're not going to see you. You know, yep. you, you have to have your gun resting on your knee that whole time. You have to be able to sit still and, um, and just go for it. And, and if it doesn't work, you know, get up and go after another one and try it again or, or loop around on them. Um, you know, if they move into the woods, figure out which way they're going and do, you know, get your miles in and walk, walk a mile and a half and do a giant loop and try and get back on them in an hour yep. and try it all over again. You, you were talking a little bit about belly crawling. Um, I think in the last, uh, I don't know, the last shot I can remember missing was because I was on my stomach. I was in a prone position and this bird came at me and I couldn't move. I'm right-handed. I couldn't shoot to my right. And he was, he was not that far off to my right. Had I been, had I been sitting up 
or leaning against something or even squatting down, I could have been able to swing and shoot at that bird, but I just couldn't get into a physical position. So being comfortable, I think, is is really key. I think it's extremely key, and and because you once you you have to be, I mean, as they're moving in, you have to sit still and being comfortable, along with being versatile to be able to take a shot. You just have to be able to be comfortable enough to sit still. And there's been so many times where I've I've gotten into these like awkward sitting positions or like my legs falling asleep and things take longer than you think, you know, that bird's just out of sight and that Tom's gobbling his head off, but he's not coming in and it just takes time. But I missed the bird. I missed the bird last year on my belly too. And it's the same field I'm talking about. And like this, it was, it was somewhat, uh, it was, it was an extremely exciting experience for me, but it was bittersweet. But what happened is I had gotten on these birds at like, 5 30 that morning and and they got down out of the trees and they worked way across this field and and this has been going on for like i don't know it was mid-morning i mean i'd been out of out of range for these things for probably three hours i'd been crawling around trying to get in position and lo and behold i mean they they finally um i was using the terrain in the field it's kind of undulating to kind of work quietly Mm -hmm. i finally got close to them and um, I didn't have my range finder that day and I just, it's so easy to underestimate yardage in a field compared to oh, yeah. like being in the yeah. woods where you can look at trees and the, the bird was just a little farther out than I thought. And I missed yep. him and like three hours crawling around that field <laughs> and, yep. the, the, and yep. that bird was gone. And I was like, wow, how did that happen? <laughs> anyway, yeah, well, you're. You're a smart guy from learning from that. And, you know, another thing, too, about being comfortable and sitting down. I, there's been plenty of times I've had a, a Tom 10 yards away and my gun's on the ground. And it's just laying on the ground. Well, don't don't try and pick up that gun as he's walking in. Let him come in. And then he's going to strut. And you know that there's going to be a time when he's going to have his tail to you. Mm-hmm. And you can just reach down. I I reached down. I had to drop my box call, which of course made a noise. He turned around, looked at me with his head up, and by that time, I had my gun in my hand, and That's, he was done. That so, yeah, that is solid advice. That is really solid advice. And I'll, yeah. I'll ask you one generic question. Um, you've got a fascinating background. You work in sculpture. You you travel mm-hmm. all over the place. You teach. What's it like? Like the intersection, I always like asking this question, like between personal lives and professional lives and your hunting career and everything, like uh, what's that intersection been like for you? You get a lot of different worldviews in the, in oh, the yeah. work that you do. Um, how, like, how's that experience been for you? Oh, it's been great. Um, you know, I think uh, as, as you, you talked earlier about uh, COVID-19 and, um, you know, thinking about... Um, being prepared and all that. I have two chest freezers full of, you know, goose, duck, deer, turkey, you name it is in there. And um, so I'm not shopping. <laughs> and uh, that, that's definitely a good thing. But I think, you know, it, it, it really makes me see um, both sides of a lot of situations, whether it's, uh, you know, politics and everything else i can understand both sides because i don't fit into any group um so and and i love to learn um so 
I'm just so happy being able to experience all these different things with different people all over the world and from all over the country. And uh, that's pretty thrilling. And so the whole reason I'm a guide is because I love to do it and I love to help people and I love to show people, um, you know, my way of doing things. So it may not be the best way. It may may not always work, but um, it's a way, right? So. Yeah, I, I love that perspective. And I love, I think it's so important to be able to see both sides and, and especially in today's world, it's, uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a real benefit and a real um, perk and skill to be able to see both sides of things, especially just in life, but in conservation and, and, and a lot of different scenarios. It's, it's a great perspective, Drew. Um, I, I'm, I've had so much fun on this, um, this podcast. We need to do this again. We can continue to talk about turkey hunting and dig deeper. This is a great primer. I know the listeners are going to learn a lot from this and it's going to benefit their turkey hunting season. And I appreciate it. Um, so I just want to give you a shout out, Drew, and a shout out yep. to Eastern View Outfitters in Plattsburgh, New York, and to um, to all the great all the great tips you've shared today. And I wish you the best yep. for a successful hunting season, and look forward to following you. Where can people find you? So uh, GSP underscore Jaeger um, is my Instagram. So uh, GSP, I'm a, I'm a big uh, dog hunting lover. So I have a German short haired pointer. And uh, I spend a lot of time in in uh, Europe and speak a little bit of German. So that Jaeger is hunter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where that comes from. So GSP underscore Jaeger. And uh, if anybody has any questions, I'm always more than happy to answer questions or help people out and um, do what I can to give back. It's great. So I, I look forward to rolling this out, Drew. And thanks so much. And um Look forward to talking again soon. Yeah, thank you so much. This is a great time as well, and I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.